In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. My Lord and my God, I firmly believe that you are here, that you see me, that you hear me. I adore you with profound reverence. I ask you for pardon of my sins and grace to make this time of prayer fruitful. My Mother Immaculate, Saint Joseph, my Father and Lord, my Guardian Angel, intercede for me. We've just begun the week of prayer for Christian unity. We're echoing the prayer of Jesus himself at the Last Supper, that all may be one, that the Church might reflect the unity of the Blessed Trinity as you, Father, in me, and I in you, in the Holy Spirit, if we could add. That's Jesus' prayer, and we want to echo that throughout this week. It's a long tradition, over a hundred years old, in the Church to remember this intention during January. And it's based on prayer, because unity is a great gift. It's one of the qualities of the Church, one, holy, Catholic and apostolic, all of which are very important aspects of her life and of her, her being. But unity seems to be really at the heart of her very existence and her very being, one fold and one shepherd. There is one Christ and whom we follow. St. Paul and the other apostles are constantly in their letters and in their actions, bringing people together, helping people to be at one in the church. Because really from the very beginning there were differences and small, smaller and larger uh, disagreements which sometimes had were in danger of becoming uh, permanent and solidified but the, the apostles preached and taught and gave their lives uh, in many different ways in terms of their the way that they looked after the early communities different towns and places and also eventually by giving their very lives for, for the faith. So the unity of the churches is built on this total commitment of the apostles as well as on our Lord's death on the cross where, where the church is actually born from his wounded side. So we're building on something really solid even if there are difficulties and there have been disagreements, and of course Christianity is marked by disagreement, by schisms over the centuries, which have, in some cases, unfortunately, not been cured and been solidified. You can think of Europe after the Reformation in the 16th century, that total, that huge division of Christianity, which must have been quite a a trauma at the time, Christianity, which had been at one and all of a sudden has been is radically uh, divided, that must have really upset people 
and while we're more used to it today, it should still we should still see it as a kind of a wound, something that that worries us. The sorrow of separation, it's it's a good sorrow to have, and the fact that we cannot join in the sacraments, for instance, it's a it's a salutary sorrow, a salutary pain, as the church popes have often termed it, that. Um, that we don't have this unity in faith and so therefore we cannot uh, receive the same sacraments. Um, it's, it's a good thing to be sad at this because it is genuinely a motive of sadness. St. John in his first letter has a lovely introduction to his vocation but more than his own vocation just to the very identity of of the church around the apostles. He explains, first of all, what the apostles and all of us believe in and how he's passed it on, how the other apostles also have passed it on to the people to whom he's writing. We don't know exactly where the destination of this letter was, unlike many of St. Paul's letters. So we can imagine some Christian community receiving it and being encouraged by these words. First paragraph, chapter 1, verse 1 of his first letter, uh, 1 to 4, is called, termed in the side heading, The Word of Life. And he, he puts it as follows. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we saw it, and testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father, and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So they preach this great news of the incarnation, of the word of life, that eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us, to the apostles. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you. So that's what the apostles spent their lives doing, proclaiming the incarnation, proclaiming that Jesus is the Son of God, the Word made flesh, in the very words which St. John uses in his Gospel. And he goes on to, to explain that he has done all this, or the apostles have done all this, so that you may have fellowship with us, so they preached this doctrine, this central doctrine of our faith, in order that the faithful may have fellowship with the apostles. So the church isn't just a group of people who happen to well, believe the same things and have read the same books and agree with what they, the message contained in those books, like a, a theory or a philosophy. No, the church is, from the very beginning, a communion, uh, a fellowship. Faith 
gives rise to communion and fellowship with one another. So the church from the very beginning is this family, based in a way on the family of God, the family of the Blessed Trinity, if we can call it that. That uh, The church reflects that and is brought together, in her case, brought together in faith. Faith is what allows us to have this, this communion, this unity. And from the very beginning, there were obviously difficulties, as we've mentioned before. But this is the very uh, identity card of the church, her unity, one holy Catholic and apostolic. So we're praying this week that that unity can be regained. Obviously, it's already there within the Catholic Church, but we're praying that we're praying that all Christians should share in that unity, which Jesus willed and prayed for, for His Church. We want to join in in that prayer ourselves. The Second Vatican Council can be termed the Council of Ecumenism. It's a it's an ecumenical council in two senses. Obviously, it's one of a series of ecumenical councils going right back to the Council of Nicaea through the other Eastern Council as the Council of Trent, the First Vatican Council. They were all ecumenical in the sense that they brought together everybody, the universal church. But it was also ecumenical in the sense that it had a great desire to be ecumenical and to bring together Christians and to make sure that everything was proclaimed in such a way that it would invite and attract separated brethren to the one fold of Christ. And in the council, they, in the document which they uh, wrote about ecumenism, it explains that human powers and capacities alone cannot achieve this holy objective, the reconciling of all Christians in the unity of the one and only Church of Christ. It is because of this that the Council rests all its hope on Christ's prayer for the Church. So it's the prayer of Christ for the Church that we believe will one day bring about the unity that we ask for this week. We don't consider that we can obtain it by organisation, even by great works of explanation. I remember reading a story about Pope Benedict, uh, Cardinal Ratzinger as he then was, working with the commission that was trying to come up with a declaration, a shared declaration on justification between Lutheran and Catholic, the Lutheran churches and, and, and the Catholic church. And apparently it, it took an awful lot of effort and an awful lot of work and eventually they went to his house and um, finally were able to draft a document which eventually was uh, officially uh, released as coming from both sides. And obviously events like that are very important and they do contribute to a greater atmosphere of unity seeing how, in fact, many of the statements in the 16th century when the great schism occurred actually can be um, now understood in a way that everybody can share 
now that people are more serene and able to reflect on what the reformers wanted to highlight and uh, what the Catholic Church at the time wanted to stress as well. And uh, that was a great breakthrough and it was a wonderful thing. But it's not enough. We, we need to pray and we need the prayer of Christ above all to make this happen. And hence this particular week of the year in which the Church does uh, pray specifically for this intention. Pope Benedict in a homily, uh, sorry, a general audience in 2008, this time of the year, uh, spoke of the origin of this church unity octave. He explained uh, on the 100th anniversary, because it was in 1908, when it was introduced, it proved a truly fruitful intuition. Father Paul Watson was an American Anglican who later entered the communion of the Catholic Church and founded the Society of the Atonement. In 1908, with another Episcopalian, Father Spencer Jones, he launched the prophetic idea of an octave of Christian unity. This initiative spread rapidly, and eight years later, Benedict XV decided to extend it to the whole church in 1916. The, the dates have always remained the same, uh, from the 18th to the 25th of January. In the liturgical calendar then in use, the 18th of January was the Feast of the Chair of St. Peter, which now has, been, has since then been moved to February. St. Peter, who is the firm foundation and sure guarantee of the unity of the entire people of God. So that was celebrated on the 18th of January, while on the 25th of January, then as today, the liturgy celebrates the feast of the conversion of St. Paul. So those two feast days um, are very good um, bookends for the octave. St. Peter, who uh, was given the task by Jesus, to strengthen his brothers in the faith. And St. Paul, who brought, who first of all was converted himself on the road to Damascus, and then was able to spread the nets, as St. Peter had originally done in the Lake of Galilee. St. Paul was uh, able to spread the nets all over the Mediterranean, all over the known world of the time, coming from Jerusalem and to bring many people, many Gentiles, into the church. So you can sense the appropriateness of the, the two original feast days and uh, how Saints Peter and Paul are inspiring this, uh, this octave which we're celebrating. Ecumenism isn't a sort of an added extra in the life of the church. It's part of her mission. St John Paul II said it's not just some sort of appendix which is added to the church's traditional activity which we kind of think about for eight eight days and then forget about for the rest of the year it's part of her mission an organic part of her mission and stems from taking seriously the task which Christ left us and for which he prayed to the father before his passion Saint, uh, sorry, Pope Benedict 
explains in another address at this time of the year. Unity is our common mission. It is the condition that enables the light of Christ to be spread better in every corner of the world so that men and women convert and are saved. So it's, um, it's the church wants to shed this light and it makes it, the more united she, she is, the more, the more clear and bright and enlightening is the light of Christ that is shed all over the world through her. So we become, by being, by praying for the unity of the church, the unity of Christians, we are in some small way allowing the evangelizing mission of the church to be more effective. Because the more united we are, well, the more people will be attracted and they will feel, well, I know what, what these people believe. I know what they're saying. And I would like to believe it as well. It's a, it just makes it more likely the more united uh, we are. So uh, what, can, what can we do about this? Some, some of us might think, well, I don't really have any particular role in ecumenism. I don't know many separated Christians. I don't have many opportunities to explain the faith to people who... Who don't uh, who don't share it? Well, there's a lot that we can do. Um, one of the discoveries of the Church at the Second Vatican Council, where, as you know, she spoke a lot about her own kind of identity. Uh, one of the important documents of the uh, Second Vatican Council is uh, Lumen uh, Gentium, which is all about the um, uh, the church you know what is the church it's kind of going deeper into understanding her herself and in that uh, document speaks a lot about the different ways in which we can understand the church i mean the gospels are so full of analogies and metaphors and similes that kind of give us a some sort of an idea of what the church is the kingdom of of god it's uh, it's the um uh, the wedding feast it's the bride uh, the spouse of christ um it's got so there's so many different ways of uh, thinking of it as the the, the sheepfold where we're all welcomed in uh, and so on and so forth the body of christ and also the people of god so the Lumen Gentium is a very rich kind of uh, document kind of reflecting on the church's own identity in all those different uh, facets and aspects of, of, who she, of who she really is. And in the years after the council, another name uh, began to arise uh, and it came very much to the fore 20 years later in 1985 when there was a, a special synod which St. John Paul II called to reflect on the Second Vatican Council at 20 years distance to look back on the teachings and on the fruits of the Council, the self-understanding of the Church. 
And one of the really interesting new uh, facets which came out of that particular synod reflecting on the council was the idea that the church is a communion and that this means that she is a unity but a unity among very different kinds of people it's not just a uniformity where everyone is exactly the same but a, a, a unity in indifference uh, and I suppose we all experience this in you know just looking at the church or if you've ever been to Rome you sort of meet people from all over the world where they with very little in common with us because they come from different countries cultures civilizations but they share the same love for the Holy Father the same doctrine the same sacraments and it's a great sense of uh, well of just the Catholicity of the church well this idea of communion seemed to reflect this very well but on the one hand you've got a lot of differences on the other hand those differences don't matter there's a healthy kind of pluralism in the people of God within the same faith and the same sacraments and the same belief there's a huge variety and that's not a problem to put it that way so in that sense the idea of the church as a as a communion came very much to the fore in that um, in those years after the council and as a result of that um, saint um, john paul ii when he was uh, instituting or uh, heralding the beginning of the new millennium in a famous letter he, he wrote the start of 2001 Novo Millennio in Aonte, which was a kind of rallying cry with a whole series of projects which the church needs to take on. The project of prayer, the project of the sacraments, and also this project of a spirituality of communion. That we would find ourselves uh, thinking of the church, uh, of our brothers and sisters in the church, as a communion and sharing with them. Uh, St. John Paul puts it as follows in his uh, letter. A spirituality of communion implies the ability to see what is positive in others, to welcome it and prize it as a gift from God, not only as a gift for the brother or sister who has received it directly, but also as a gift for me. So the, the good things that the church has, like the communion of saints, which means communion of saints as in holy people, but it also means communion of holy things, that we share these sacraments, we share these saints. I heard of a Scandinavian convert, a theologian, who remarked that uh, when he became uh, a Catholic, um, he had been, uh, I imagine, a Lutheran for most of his life, but when he became a Catholic, he, he realized that he now somehow owned two millennia's worth of wisdom, of truth, of weakness, of holiness, of teachers, of martyrs, of saints. They all belonged to him now as part of this communion of holy things and people. 
belonging. Uh, it's important to belong. And when it comes to our faith, it really is important to belong. We cannot believe on our own. The creed we on Sundays we say, I believe. But there's also a formula where you can say, we believe. And, um, and both are true. The Catechism of the Catholic Church has two sections, one entitled, I believe, sort of stressing how the, the belief of the church is, is very, you have to believe it yourself. You have to take, no one else can believe for you. It's a personal act of accepting the faith, which we do which we, when we stand up every Sunday to recite it. But we also say we believe in the sense that we couldn't really articulate the faith just on our own. We wouldn't be able to. We need a whole church. Just like they say, you know, it needs a, a village to bring up a child. Well, it needs a church to articulate the faith. And it's as part of the church of sharing in her wisdom, sharing in her history, which kind of now belongs to us and belong to that convert. He sort of felt it very keenly that he, he, he from the, the wisdom of St. Teresa of Avila to the, the courage of the martyrs to the holiness of um, Mother Teresa of Calcutta, etc. All of this wasn't so much something that he could admire and say, I'd like to imitate that, I think that's wonderful. It was actually something that was his now and it's ours too. And so the more we kind of go into this communion and feel sort of part of it, uh, belonging to it, the more we are building up the unity of the church. And from there outwards, we can build up the, uh, the communion, the unity of all Christians. Hopefully that someday this would become a, a reality. Our Lady has a, a big role here. She was there with the apostles in the upper room before they launched out to bring the faith to the whole world. She taught them in a way uh, how to be apostles. She taught them how to launch out and bring the faith, which I suppose she was the one who, whom it is to be found in its fullness. Nobody has ever understood the faith like Mary does. So she encouraged them and showed them how to express this and bring it to the whole world, which they duly did. But Mary also teaches us how to belong to the church and to feel part of her, feel united to the Holy Father, united to our brothers and sisters all over the world, praying for Christians who particularly need our prayer, being Catholic in that sense, that's St. Paul used to talk about his concern for all the churches and we can share that concern by our prayer when we hear about, for example, Christians who are being persecuted or who are undergoing hardship in some way in some country. Well, that's, that's our problem. That's part of our concern for, for all the churches. And if we can feel that sense of unity, that's, that's a real contribution to the prayer for church unity, working from within outwards, bringing this light to the whole world. So let's ask Our Lady to help us to, well, to feel that we do belong, that we can make our contribution, that we can bring to people, we can explain to people the reasons for our hope, as St. Peter puts it. That's his definition of the apostolate. Give people reasons for the hope that is within us. 
Our Lady will surely help us to live this week to the full, make our contribution to that great effort of the whole Church. I give you thanks, my God, for the good resolutions, affections and inspirations which you have communicated to me in this meditation. I ask you for help to put them into effect. My Mother Immaculate, Saint Joseph, my Father and Lord, my Guardian Angel, intercede for me.